The Crimopedia podcast is a completely independent show that explores content of a potentially violent and disturbing nature. Please use your listening discretion. Hi everyone, and welcome to the special Halloween episode of the Crimopedia podcast. Today, I'm going to be walking you through one of the craziest phenomena that I've ever learned about. It was a little bit before my time, but it was a societal panic, a moral panic, that swept across the United States, Canada, and even Europe through the 1970s, 80s, and even into the early 90s. It's known as Satanic Panic. It was a mass underlying cultural fear of Satanism, and it was deeply woven into the fabrics of our society for almost three decades. The crazy part is, is that it was completely unfounded. It was based on what people perceived to be satanic, but really they were just behaviors that were outside of the societal norm. The consequences of this fear and moral panic were much more than people wanting to lock their doors at night or purchase weapons. It resulted in charges being laid and convictions being upheld against innocent people. People who chose to listen to heavy metal music. People who chose to have tattoos. People who didn't fit into the white Christian norm. These people were accused of everything from murder to systematic ritualistic child abuse and were accused of being part of satanic cults that snuck themselves into positions of authority in order to convert the next generation to Satanism. If that sounds crazy, it's because it was. And many people suffered the consequences of a few people who decided that this was something to be worried about. People in the Americas thought that Satanists were roaming the streets at night, but also that they were our daycare providers our teachers, our politicians, and they were taking control of society one day at a time, ritual after ritual, human sacrifice after human sacrifice. Today, we're going to talk about satanic panic. We're going to talk about its origins, its effects, and how it contributed to the false incarceration of three teenage boys deep in the Bible Belt of the United States, known as the West Memphis Three. With that, I think it's a good time to jump right in. The phenomena of satanic panic is considered to be a moral panic. More or less a generalized fear about the changing in cultural norms in society. There are many conflicting theories about how satanic panic came to be such a big problem, but many people conclude that it was the sudden and somewhat unexpected advent of entirely secular popular culture. The rise in heavy metal, the beginning days of violent video games with pixels as big as your pinky finger. But to me, I found a few convincing theories as to where this came from, and I'm going to share it with you now. In 1980, Michelle Smith and her Canadian psychiatrist, Lawrence Pazder, authored a book titled Michelle Remembers. 
In this book, Michelle details her experiences of alleged physical, sexual, and ritualistic abuse at the hands of occultists. Dr. Lawrence Pastor used the now highly discredited practice of recovered memory therapy to make claims about Michelle and her experiences suffering from ritualistic satanic abuse. This type of therapy, wanting to recover repressed memories, uses hypnosis, journaling, past life regression techniques, guided imagery, even inducing patients with sodium amytal. This medication is a barbiturate derivative, and for all intents and purposes, it's pretty effectively sedative. The idea was that by using these techniques, patients would be able to recall forgotten, repressed, hidden traumatic memories. The allegations that Michelle came up with through these recovered memory techniques involved physical and sexual abuse conducted in satanic rituals. She recalled being tortured, locked in cages, assaulted, being an unwilling participant in rituals, witnessing human sacrifices, and even being rubbed in blood. Now, these allegations of ritualistic abuse by Michelle have been largely discredited. Even when you look up the book, Michelle Remembers on Wikipedia, the first line of the introduction to that page is that the entire thing has been discredited. And that's because now, in hindsight, people realize that there was no evidence to back up any of her claims. People now seem to think that the content of this book and her quote-unquote repressed memories were more so based off of the rising popular culture of that age. But back when it came out in 1980, it was the perfect ingredient to the perfect storm that generated moral satanic panic. This book and its release broke headlines, and there was a big push from media to simply quote-unquote believe the children. Any inconsistencies in their stories was attributed to the fact that traumatic memories can be buried within the subconscious and possibly affect behavior. Now, since I'd like to add through some literature that I found that it's been studied and concluded that the recall of traumatic memories actually has no relationship to a traumatized patient being exposed to any sort of therapy, and that repressed memory therapy is actually very dangerous. It has implications in false accusations and false convictions, which is something we will talk about in large detail in a little bit. But like I said, this book took the media by storm when it came out. And it was so initially bought into that Dr. Pazder, the co-author of Michelle Remembers, was even part of the quote-unquote Cult Crime Impact Network, a group of individuals that lectured police agencies about satanic ritual abuse, the signs, what to look out for, back in the late 80s after his book came out. And this is when people began being prosecuted for crimes relating to quote-unquote satanic abuse, which that in itself has a pretty loose definition. But it was taken so seriously at the time that law enforcement and even prosecutors had Michelle Remembers as a training guide, using the material in this book to supplement their education about ritualistic satanic abuse. This would lead police agencies all across North America, and again, even in Europe, to attribute juvenile delinquency in its most benign form to being potential signs that a child or teenager was affiliated with a satanic cult, and was therefore remarked as a threat to society. 
Investigators would take signs like graffiti if they even closely resembled a pentagram, which is a well-known satanic symbol, to be evidence of Satanism operating in the area, and subsequent investigations of that would be conducted. You can imagine how much money and time, manpower was invested into these kinds of totally baseless, presumed relationships about people's behavior if it deviated ever so slightly from the white Christian norm and somehow an automatic affiliation with Satanism. And a good example of where this manifested at its most serious was in the McMartin preschool trial. The McMartin family in the 1980s ran a preschool in Manhattan Beach, California, and their family made headlines for all the wrong reasons. Members of the family were charged with hundreds of acts of ritualistic child sex abuse, and they were forced to stand trial and defend themselves against baseless claims made by children who had spoken to investigators only with the help of leading questions. The methods with which the information about this alleged ritualistic satanic abuse was extracted were, according to Michael Mulroney, clinical psychologist who even testified at this trial, improper, coercive, problematic, and consequently forced the children to follow a rigid script upon viewing the interview tapes. Now what I'm talking about here is that some way, Somehow, someone in the local community got wind that this family were a part of a satanic cult that were operating out of this daycare that they ran. So instead of conducting a proper criminal investigation into the claims that were made, the rumors that were spread, all children in the daycare and anyone in their neighborhoods that they were friends with were invited to come speak to police at the police station. They had made horrific claims of sexual abuse, but in addition to recalling that abuse and recalling how it was quote-unquote ritualistic conducted by the McMartin family, the reason why their testimonies are so problematic and full of holes ready to be poked is that they also recalled claiming to see witches fly, being taken into a hot air balloon, being taken to a secret underground network of tunnels under the daycare, and one of them even claimed that Chuck Norris was one of their abusers. If it doesn't seem like it could possibly get any more ridiculous, people were so dead set on prosecuting perceived Satanists that even despite these testimonies from children being riddled with inconsistencies and total ridiculousness, the media took this idea about secret tunnels under the daycare being the place where the ritualistic satanic abuse was conducted, and they ran with it. If you don't believe me, you can google it. And despite all of these insane allegations with no proof or reliable witnesses, the New York Times reported that the case attracted national attention, which was true, but the media was largely skewed with the angle of fear-mongering. People were very quick to accept the prosecution's position about ritualistic abuse without even taking a second look into the total lack of evidence that was collected or the validity of the testimonies that were extracted. People truly and earnestly believe that an entire family of devil worshippers had infiltrated their community and taken over a daycare to propagate their mission and rituals across the country, one daycare at a time. And this was largely in part due to Michelle Remembers and all of the quote-unquote activism and advocacy that Dr. Pazder and Michelle Smith, who would end up being married, by the way, would go on to do. 
these two had essentially done a glorified continental press tour, trying to advocate for awareness about the perceived real threat of Satanism infiltrating American communities. And as a result, you can see exactly how people are very easily influenced by the position of the media. But Michelle Remembers isn't the only theory of origin of satanic panic. Some people even attribute this moral panic beginning back in 1974 with the release of Dungeons and Dragons. Not that I don't know what that is, but I'll give you a definition for those who don't. According to Dicebreaker.com, Dungeons and Dragons was a fantasy role-playing game, and it was painted as a quote-unquote nefarious gateway to the occult tainting the minds of young people. Dungeons and Dragons came out in 1974 and was criticized for depicting demonic figures as game players and being about as anti-Christian as you can get. But this theory of origin starting with Dungeons and Dragons is a little bit more all-encompassing. This website, Dicebreaker.com, brings up a really interesting point. Right before the release of Dungeons and Dragons, there was a major cultural shift happening in the Americas and some argue that it began with the Manson family back in 1969. If you don't know who Charles Manson was, he was a cult leader based in California who was able to recruit many members into his following and was able to coerce some of them into committing a series of nine violent, ritualistic-style murders that had more than a few obvious airs of Satanism. People argue that the Manson murders were one of the first to spark a revolutionary movement in crime in the United States during this time. If you think about it, after the Manson murders happened, we see a whole bunch of serial killers operating, especially in California, in the 70s and 80s. Just to name a few, we have Ted Bundy, we have John Wayne Gacy, David Berkowitz, the co-ed killer Ed Kemper, the Hillside Strangler, BTK or Dennis Rader, Jeffrey Dahmer, Eileen Warrenos, Sam Little, Gary Ridgway, Joseph James D'Angelo, the original Night Stalker, aka the East Area Rapist, aka the Golden State Killer, and Richard Ramirez, the de facto Night Stalker. And that's just to name a few. The release of Dungeons and Dragons to some seemed like a sort of gateway into this violent uprising of ritualistic crime that was seemingly overtaking the country back in those days. But the origins of satanic panic go even deeper, and many theories involving its origins attribute its popularity in media and culture to five central factors. Firstly, we have the establishment of fundamentalist Christianity and the founding of the moral majority. The Moral Majority was a right-wing political Christian group in the 1970s that associated itself with the Republican Party and aimed to mobilize Christians as a political force. Then, after the Manson murders and some of the serial killers we see in the 70s and 80s, such as Richard Ramirez, who also was admittedly a Satanist, we have the rise of anti-cult movements, which accused abusive cults of kidnapping and brainwashing teens. We see the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid, start to emerge. And although these movements were large, they weren't quite as pervasive as Satanic Panic. We also then have the appearance of the Church of Satan, which is now a legitimate religious organization that is codified in the Satanic Bible. 
Around this time, we also see the development of social work and child protection agencies as a field of legitimate vocation. And lastly, in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association finally decided to add post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, to their latest edition of the DSM, or the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Through this, we also see the survivor movement, people using mass media outlets to tell their stories of trauma and abuse from all walks of life. This is where, in my opinion, Michelle Remembers comes in. Her book about her alleged ritualistic abuse experiences, witnessing human sacrifices at the hands of Satanists and occultists, all of that was readily accepted by people as part of this movement to believe survivors. But unfortunately, it was to the actual survivor's detriment. As you can see, wherever the true origin of satanic panic really lies, it's hard to ignore the conglomerate of contributing factors in media and popular culture. It was a time of intense shame for people who were the first amongst their communities, especially those in the Bible Belt in the United States, to be dyeing their hair different colors, listening again to heavy metal music. Because not only were those things frowned upon in the first place, but now they were associated with crimes, satanic ritualistic crimes. At its most extreme, there were conspiracies that a global cult of satanic elites were systematically recruiting young children to convert them to Satanism. And this included accusing people who acted ever so slightly different of abducting and grooming children. These people were accused of engaging in rituals involving pornography, prostitution, other kinds of trafficking, and sacrifices. I mean, really, I wasn't alive to see this in action, but from what I've read and what I know, this was wild. And I think it can all be understood by using the concept of othering, or the other. Edmund Husserl is known as the father of phenomenology, which is the philosophical study of experiences and consciousness, and he described quote-unquote othering as the concept of identifying someone and the differences they have from yourself. It sometimes spirals into the reductive labeling of a person, the practice of subconsciously labeling them and excluding them from whatever social group that you belong to, and understanding that social norms just don't apply to them, they're just different, they're just weird, and they're going to be treated as such. Othering can be subconscious, and it can influence the way you perceive the other, the quote-unquote out-group, and again, how you treat them. Frankly, it's the foundation for the most inherent biases that people have towards each other even today based on their positionality, their social group, racial group, religious group, economic standings, the whole nine, but that's another story. The concept of othering makes a lot of sense to me when discussing satanic panic. Again, we have the rise of the moral majority and fundamentalist Christianity, and now we have this movement about separating church from state. We also have these, frankly, what were scary people emerging from the shadows, killing others and claiming to garner the inspiration from Satanism. Again, we have this book, Michelle Remembers, coming out and blaming Satanists for abuse that, frankly, she never suffered. We have the formation of heavy metal groups like ACDC back in 1973, and at the end of it all, we have very much an in-group and an out-group. The in-group being the white, Christian, middle-class majority that was setting the precedent for social norms across the Americas during this time, and the out-group being essentially everybody who didn't fit that standard. 
And unfortunately, given the rise of this cultural moral panic, being a part of the outgroup meant more than just being treated a little differently. It had consequences that were sometimes deadly. In my opinion, the most interesting example of the consequences of being in an outgroup manifest in the case of the West Memphis Three. Three teenage boys who were accused and convicted of the violent, quote-unquote, ritualistic murder of three eight-year-old boys in West Memphis, Arkansas. According to Wikipedia, West Memphis is the largest city in Cretendon County, Arkansas. But via the 2010 census, it was noted that the population was only 26,000. By my standards, it's a small town, but that's neither here nor there. If you were standing at the portion of the Mississippi River that runs through West Memphis, you could look directly across to Memphis, Tennessee. West Memphis and Arkansas as a whole, as well as Tennessee, are located in the Bible Belt, where quote-unquote, socially conservative Protestant Christianity plays a strong role in society and politics. Within the belt, church attendance across all denominations of Christianity is notably higher than the nation's average. In Arkansas, approximately 25% of the population are Baptists, 5% are Pentecostal Christians, and about 46% of the total population are pretty hardcore Christians, with about 70% of those people stating that religion is very important. It has implications on the politics of the area too, with these states historically voting Republican, and they've all done so essentially unanimously and consecutively for decades. When I was doing some research about the Bible Belt in the United States, I came across a portion about Canada and how the province of Alberta has also been referred to as Canada's Bible Belt, with a quote-unquote significant Catholic, Anabaptist, and other Protestant population. I find this really interesting. As a Canadian, I kind of see what is meant here, just empirically, but I still don't think that those deep-rooted Christian values are quite as prominent in Alberta as they are in the Bible Belt. That may be just due to a media bias generally towards American news and politics, but in my opinion, what happens in the Bible Belt is pretty hardcore. Anyways, I digress. From what I saw about West Memphis, in recent years, it's had a pretty significant crime rate, but before this recent spike, things were overall pretty tame. They have a relatively small local police department, at least relative to what I'm used to in my hometown, and it's pretty uncommon for the citizens of West Memphis to experience the type of mass crimes that are most often seen in places like California, New York, Toronto, etc. Again, I think it's uncommon to see this kind of thing in any small town, but given how strongly upheld religious and moral standards were, I think what happened on May 5th of 1993 was much more shocking than I can simply put into words. On that day, back in 1993, three eight-year-old boys disappeared in West Memphis. Their names were Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. The three were all second graders at Weaver Elementary School. They were also all Cub Scouts together, reaching the rank of Wolf, and I think it goes without saying, but they were all best friends. 
Steve Branch lived with his mother, Pamela Branch, when she divorced his father, also a man named Steve, and eventually she would remarry a man named Terry Hobbs. The family unit also consisted of Steve's four-year-old half-sister, Amanda. Steve was known to be a really friendly kid, and one website I found said that he was pretty easily recognizable because he had strikingly light blonde hair. And from the photos of him that you'll see on my website at crimopediapod.ca or on my Instagram at crimopediapod, you'll know exactly what I mean. This kid was about as bleach blonde as I tried to be every time I walk into my hair salon. Michael Moore, on the other hand, had dark brown hair, and he was also busy playing with his friend Steve on May 5th, 1993. Michael was born to Todd and Dana Moore, and he also had a nine-year-old sister named Dawn. He was known to be very proud of his role in the Boy Cubs. Even when he wasn't doing anything cub-related, he could be seen at any given time wearing Boy Cub merch. Even on the day he went missing, he was last seen wearing his blue Boy Scouts shirt and a Boy Scout hat. One of the websites I found when doing my research said that he was a natural-born leader as described by his family. Even just through briefly reading about Michael Moore, I think anyone can get the sense that he would have been destined for greatness. Also with Steve Branch and Michael Moore on May 5th back in 1993 was their third friend, Chris Byers. Chris was born to a woman named Melissa DeFere, who in some reports goes by the name Sharon. Chris's biological dad, Ricky Murray, and Melissa, aka Sharon, got divorced approximately four years prior to Chris's disappearance. But when Melissa met her new husband, John Mark Byers, he had no issues stepping into the role of a true father, and he actually even went on to formally adopt Chris, given Chris's last name being the same as John's, Byers. Again, the family unit also lived with Chris's stepbrother, Sean Ryan Clark, who was 13 years old back in 1993. According to Chris's mom, Chris was a quote-unquote very typical eight-year-old boy, and she means that in the most wholesome and lighthearted sense. According to her, Chris still believed in the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and things like that. His childlike spirit really couldn't be dampened, and I think it was something that everybody loved about him. On May 5th, at approximately 3pm, the boys get out of school. Steve Branch had just gotten a new bike, and Michael Moore wanted to go to his house to ride bikes together, and so he was granted permission to do so. Michael Moore's mom, Dana, apparently sees the two boys riding up and down 14th Street in West Memphis. Apparently afterwards, just like a classic 90s childhood goes, the boys were on their bikes and met up with a larger group, and they were riding around the neighborhoods, presumably allowed out until the streetlights turned off. <laughs> That's just conjecture, I'm simply reminiscing. Then around 5 to 5.30 p.m., a couple of neighbors see four boys, three of whom are on bikes and one of them is walking, who were later identified as Chris Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch. Then, around closer to 6pm, the boys are seen venturing into an area called the Robin Hood Hills. This area is apparently just a localized forest fragment that kind of runs off of the highway in the area. It wasn't that uncommon for young kids and teenagers to meet up in this area. I know, again, even in my own childhood, there was definitely a patch of woods that my friends and I would also go meet up at. 
And if you look through the series of events that occurred that evening before the boys went into Robin Hood Hills, you'll see that a lot of different people, neighbors in the area, had at one time or another seen all three boys, or at least two of them, on a few separate occasions. And so it's not like people didn't know they were together and didn't really know where they were going. So going into the woods wasn't really a big deal. Some reports online say that younger children were cautioned not to go into the woods because apparently it was frequented by some drug users and unhoused people. But I mean, when you're a kid and you're riding your bike and you're roaming the streets, the temptation is, is pretty significant. And so, long story short, that is exactly where Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Chris Byers ended up around 6, 6.30 p.m. Now, although not a whole lot of time had passed since the boys were last seen, some of the parents were starting to get worried. Again, I'm sure just as the convention goes, when the streetlights go off, please come home. But it was starting to get dark out, and nobody had seen the boys since they were last noticed going into the Robin Hood Hills. That's when Christopher Byers' dad, John Mark Byers, decided to call the West Memphis Police Department and report his son missing around 8 p.m. A search team was sent out to the Robin Hood Hills area where the boys were last seen, pretty soon after the phone call from John Mark Byers was received. But as it had been getting dark already, and that one report I read said that those woods get pretty mosquito-infested at night, the search team wasn't really getting anywhere, they couldn't see much, and they figured it was better to look for them again in the morning if they didn't turn up on their own. So around 8am the next morning on May 6th, back in 1993, a real honest effort was made to search for the boys, and it was led by the Cretendon County Search and Rescue. Now, despite what is described as quote-unquote shoulder-to-shoulder search efforts of the Robin Hood Hills area, as well as a comprehensive search of the entire municipality of West Memphis as a whole, there were really no signs of the boys anywhere. It's like they walked into this tiny little forest fragment and never walked out of it. For a few hours that, to the parents, must have felt like dragged on for days or weeks, it really seemed like these boys vanished into thin air. And that was true until approximately 1.45 p.m. that same day. Running through the Robin Hood Hills was a large drainage canal. On either side of this small body of water, there was a pretty significant ditch. And around 1.45 p.m., Officer Steve Jones with the search and rescue party spotted a boy-sized black shoe floating in the muddy creek water that eventually led them to look deeper into the drainage canal and see where the shoe might have been floating away from. When officers began to search more deeply into the area and into the ditch, they stumbled upon a scene that was truly horrific. Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers were all found deceased laying around this ditch area. All three boys were found naked, covered in mud and forest debris, and shockingly, they were all hogtied, with their own shoelaces and their right ankles bound to their right wrists, and same with their left ankles, and same with their left wrists. And it was very clear that all three boys were the victims of a violent, horrific attack. 
Steve Branch's bike and Michael Moore's bike were also found sort of laying in and around the ditch area a little bit a ways away from the bodies. It's a little bit difficult to describe, but I will leave a link on my website that contains an abundance of crime scene photos. However, I'm going to warn you that some of them are not very pleasant to look at, and if you do go searching for other photos in this case, it's not very hard to find photos of the crime scene with the victims in it. So I caution you, search at your own risk. Because the boys were all found naked, police began searching for their clothes. From my research, it seems like most of it was recovered. Some of it was weirdly found inside out, most of it had been washing down the creek, getting tangled up in different kinds of debris, and for lack of better terms, it was kind of all over the place. In my opinion, what about this clothing is interesting to me is some of what was not found. According to one of the reports I found, which was a list of evidence collected sent to the lab for analysis, it looks like there was only one pair of children's underwear collected at the scene. I don't know who they belong to, and I don't know which of the other two were missing their underwear. But to me, given the fact that, again, they were naked and two of the boys had their underwear completely missing, this is the first indication of some sort of sexual motive. Police also would think that too, but we will get to that soon. All three boys had autopsies conducted only a day after they were found in the Robin Hood Hills area. These autopsies were conducted by the Arkansas State Crime Laboratory Medical Examiner Division. And again, I'll put these on my website as their public domain, but I'm gonna caution you against reading them. Some of the details described are pretty horrendous. But for the purposes of your information for this episode, I'll talk about some of the important details a little bit further. Michael Moore was found with scratches and other abrasions all over his face and head, with significant swelling to those areas, which to me indicates that they must have happened before he died. He also suffered skull fractures and subsequent bleeding in his brain, as well as multiple injuries all over his body, which as you'll see is very similar to the other two boys. Stevie Branch also had multiple injuries to his face and head, again similar to that of Michael Moore, but interestingly, there was significant damage to Stevie's left ear. It was described as entirely contused, meaning that the whole thing was essentially one big bruise. To me, this indicates some sort of hit to his left ear that was so powerful it left the entire thing brown and swollen. But it's Christopher Byers' autopsy that really catches people's attention. He was found again with lacerations and abrasions all over his body, but he, unlike the other two boys, suffered mutilation to his genitals. The autopsy by forensic pathologist Frank Peretti indicated that he died of multiple injuries, whereas the other two boys were supposedly the victims of multiple injuries and drowning. So there are a couple differences between the condition of Chris Byers and the conditions of his friends Michael Moore and Steve Branch. He was the only one who seemed to have suffered injuries to his genital area, and he was also seemingly the only one that didn't show any signs of being drowned. I don't entirely know what to make of this for myself, but keep these injuries in mind for later as we discuss the progression of the investigation in this case. Now, I feel like I don't even need to say this, but all three of these deaths were very quickly ruled to be a homicide. 
But like I mentioned, per some of the autopsy results, as well as the state of the crime scene with all three boys being naked and hogtied, it was suspected that the boys might have been sexually assaulted. And a big proponent of this theory was not only what had happened to Chris Byers, but the fact that, and I'll warn you in advance for what I'm about to say, all three of the boys' anuses were dilated. But as we will revisit later, this idea was disputed pretty quickly. It turns out that dilation like this is a fairly common finding in deceased bodies. I'm not entirely sure why, but other than that, and other than the mutilation that was suffered by Chris Byers, no other evidence to suggest that sexual assault actually occurred was present. And you might be thinking, okay, but what about the genital mutilation of Chris Byers? There were discussions that the genital injuries seen on Chris Byers could have been from post-mortem animal predation. Specifically, there are a species of turtle that are rampant in this area, and apparently they have a pretty intense bite. It was thought that maybe it could have been these turtles. If that is true, it's not too far out of the realm of possibility that these turtles had a post-mortem bite to eat on the victim's bodies, which resulted in mutilation of Chris Byers' genitalia. Again, we will revisit this idea later and speculate some more about the possible motive for this crime. But until then, let me introduce you to three other boys who were significantly older than the victims in question and who would be victimized in their own way. Let's start with Jason Baldwin. He was 16 years old in 1993, and he had a bit of a troubled history and was known as a bit of a delinquent around West Memphis. He had previously been arrested for vandalism, but despite this reputation he had earned, he was also earning high grades. In school, he was known for his artistic abilities in drawing and sketching, and was thought to be destined for a career in graphic design. But he was close friends with someone named Damien Eccles, who was thought of to be even more of a delinquent. I think any distaste for Jason Baldwin really does come from guilt by association with Damien Eccles, as the two really bonded and got pretty close over their shared tastes in alternative and heavy metal music, as well as their dislike of the general culture of West Memphis, particularly the fact that they were situated right in the middle of the Bible Belt, and they were not very interested in abiding by the rule set of the moral majority. Damien Eccles, on the other hand, who was 18 years old back in 1993, had a bit more of an extensive record and was known to law enforcement. He had previously been arrested for shoplifting, and on another occasion, him and his girlfriend at the time had run away from their homes and broke into a trailer for the night to escape some rain. But they were arrested, but only he was charged with burglary. Not too long prior, before Damien turned 18, he had actually dropped out of high school, but even before he did that, he rarely attended. But aside from the bad behavior that Damien got himself into in his spare time, his family as a whole was pretty socially outcast. They were quite poor, and they actually received frequent visits from social workers, I presume due to conflict, due to issues Damien was causing in the home and out on the streets, and the fact that Damien was extremely mentally ill. In fact, Damien Eccles would go on at some point in his life to spend a pretty significant time in an Arkansas mental institution, 
although I'm not exactly sure which one, how old he was, or exactly how long he was there for. But what I do know is that after his release, he would be granted quote-unquote full disability status from the Social Security Administration. Whatever mental illnesses he had been suffering from were quite significant, significant enough to be recognized by people in positions of authority, and allowed him to be granted status as a disabled person. It would come out later in trial that he suffered from, again, very serious mental illnesses, but this time they were described in great detail, and I'm going to share that with you now as I think it provides important context for the way that Damien Eccles was thought of as a member in society. Damien Eccles suffered from delusions of persecution that were often also grandiose in nature. He suffered from both auditory and visual hallucinations, what was characterized as a quote-unquote disordered thought process, a substantial lack of insight, and chronic, incapacitating mood swings. According to one of the psychologists on his mental health team, Damien had previously stated that he was able to acquire superpowers by drinking human blood. Aside from the diagnostic characteristics of Damien's mental health, he would also just say things and do things that were kind of scary to people. He had a history of liking to tell people that he would drink blood, and when he made this outlandish statement to his psychiatrist, it was not the first or last time that he would ever say that sort of thing. In fact, being so heavily alternative, being as against the grain as humanly possible was Damien's entire personality. The morals and values of this community he was raised in were about church and family and education and things like that, and he wanted nothing to do with any of it, so much so that he purposefully became anti all of that stuff. To the point where he would again brag about drinking blood, say things just to get a reaction out of people. And although this is scary, I also think we have to take into context that he was only a teenager. I know I certainly said my fair share of annoying and outlandish things when I was his age, but it left a lasting impression on his community, especially when he was engaging in criminal behavior. To them, to the larger society of West Memphis, Damien Eccles' actions further substantiated that not only was he a criminal and a bad person, but he was a dangerous person. Someone who some reports have called Antichrist-like. And then there was Jessie Miss Kelly, who was 17 years old in 1993. Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin were acquainted with Jessie Miss Kelly, but like, kind of not really. It was more so Damien and Jason that were closer friends, and Jessie would be there sometimes. From my understanding, it seems like Jessie was just kind of in their same friend group, which was comprised of troublemaking teens. And Jesse Miss Kelly certainly was a bit of a troublemaker. He had a reputation for having a bad temper and liking to engage in fights whenever he felt the need to do so. Like Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly also dropped out of high school. But I think unlike Damien Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly didn't drop out of high school simply just to do so to be against society. He did so, and I'm speculating about this, because he had a reported IQ of only 72, which categorized him as having only borderline intellectual functioning. Jesse Miscalli was unfortunately extremely intellectually challenged, and although I'm not too familiar with the neuroscience or psychological science behind this type of intellectual capacity, I'm sure many people in his life and in his community attributed his actions to his lack of executive functioning. 
and to a total lack of logical reasoning ability. Now again, remember that this guy was not really friends with Damien or Jason, and also remember that he was intellectually challenged, because both of these factors will come into play very, very soon, and help explain why all three of these boys were lumped together and ostracized before being charged and convicted as Satan occultists. During the early stages of the investigation, officers James Sudbury and Steve Jones said that they felt like the crime had quote-unquote cult and satanic overtones. Although there were some other interesting characters that they intended on looking into, they essentially immediately suspected Damien Eccles, as again, he was known to police, and he was known to the community to be affiliated with occult-like fixations. And when I tell you that it didn't take very long for police to look into Damien Eccles, I'm really not kidding, because on May 7th, only one day after the boy's bodies were discovered, he was formally interviewed and was administered a polygraph. Now, of course, Damien Eccles denied any involvement in the murders of Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Chris Byers, but the examiner indicated some deception in his answers. Police would end up bringing him in for another formal interview two days later on May 9th, and this is when things really start to go downhill. In this interview, Damien would state to police that he was a member of a white witch group that he referred to as Wicca. I know that being Wiccan is a legitimately recognized sort of affiliation to a spiritual group, but in the eyes of the detectives, they really did not like where this was going. Damien started saying things about reaching divine light. He talked about how he met someone who he considered to be a priestess, that there was a goddess and not a god. He was wearing a necklace that he had just purchased that was in the shape of a pentagram, which is a satanic symbol, but he said that it was actually a Wiccan symbol, which upon looking into, it actually is. And he pretty much showed up to the interview dressed as himself, but as a perfect typecast for someone playing the role of an occultist. Now, during this interview that was being conducted by Detective Bryn Ridge, Damien was asked about his opinions on the murder. What kind of person could have done it? How would they have felt during this murder? Damien described the murderer as probably being someone sick and that it seemed like it was some sort of thrill kill. Damien would go on to elaborate that the male genitalia is some sort of power symbol in his spiritual beliefs. Even though Damien's statements were made out of pure speculation, which he was fully invited to do, to detectives, this statement was incriminating, as it wasn't supposed to be known by the general public that one of the victims, Chris Byers, did suffer mutilation to his genitalia. But even in the same interview, Damien Eccles goes on to elaborate that he had been hearing rumors and had been told by some people in his community that the three boys, Chris Byers, Michael Moore, and Steve Branch, were cut up and tossed into a river. Whether or not these aspects of the murders were true, it should have been some sort of indication to police that rumors were circulating around town and it wasn't too far out of the realm of reality for Damien Eccles to be privy to information about genital mutilation and other aspects of the crime that were supposed to be quote-unquote close to the vest. But again, they took his statements as incriminating. He shouldn't have known as much about the crimes as he did, and given the context of his outfit and spiritual beliefs, they were pretty certain that 
he was involved somehow, some way, in the ritualistic, satanic, occult-inspired murders of these three eight-year-old boys. Over the course of that month, still in May, still the same month when the bodies were discovered, Damien Eccles was continuously brought into the West Memphis Police Department for questioning. At this point, it's pretty obvious that police had their blinders on towards Damien Eccles. There were very much other people in the local community and beyond that could have easily been implicated in the case, at least to the same extent Damien was, given that they had no evidence on Damien other than his demeanor, personality, and spiritual beliefs. Police would in fact ignore actually a lot of these suspects, but we'll get into that later. What's more important though is the fact that police did not have any physical evidence of Damien's presence at the crime scene, and again, the basis of their suspicion against him was his affiliations with Satanism, which wasn't even the case, he was Wiccan. But even still, despite it being very obvious that they did suspect him, they maintained that he was not a suspect, and allowed him to be continuously questioned under the guise of being a source of information. They questioned him about people in his social circle, they questioned him about Jason Baldwin and Jesse Miss Kelly, and eventually that led to a June 3rd police interview with Miss Kelly. Now, Jesse Miss Kelly was questioned on this day alone. It was just him in an interrogation room with West Memphis police. And yes, that means he did not have his parents or an attorney present despite being a minor, let me remind you, he was only 17. And although Jesse Miss Kelly's father did give permission for police to question his son, he did not anticipate and was not told that it was a formal interrogation. But Jesse was held and questioned by West Memphis police for 12 hours. This kind of a situation is going to be a lot for anyone. And this kind of interrogation technique where they try to exhaust their suspects can really break even the hardest of criminals. But let me remind you that Jesse Miss Kelly only had an IQ of about 72, and so it didn't take very long for, again, things to start going downhill. During this interrogation, Jesse Miss Kelly would give a confession to police, implicating both Jason Baldwin and, conveniently, Damien Eccles. He would go on to outline details about exactly how, where, and when him, Damien, and Jason killed Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers. But suspiciously, only two segments of his 12-hour interrogation, totaling 46 minutes, were recorded. I take a lot of issue with the way West Memphis police conducted themselves in this investigation, and the way they treated, coerced, and manipulated Jesse Miss Kelly is only the tip of the iceberg. And Jesse Miss Kelly would go on to agree and understand that he was coerced and intimidated, even stating that during this interrogation he was fatigued and received quote-unquote thinly veiled threats from police. As a consequence, he would later formally recant his confession, citing all of these factors contributing to, frankly, his exhaustion and feeling like he had no way out of that interrogation room unless he started talking. In specific terms, Jesse Muskelly said that he was scared. Now, during interrogations in both the United States and in Canada, there are some provisions in place to protect people from perceived interrogator bias. 
as well as just the convoluted nature of the law. These provisions manifest themselves as the Miranda Rights, as well as the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. These kind of provisions include the right to silence and the right to legal counsel, which none of the boys who were interrogated in this case received. And it also states that only when suspects know their Miranda rights or their charter rights and fully understand them are they within their own capacity to waive these rights and choose to speak to police without an attorney. But it turns out that many studies have shown that people don't understand their legal rights. In a study by Eastwood and Snook in 2010, these two researchers sampled 56 undergraduate students, nearly half of whom were enrolled in police and law enforcement programs. Each of these students were presented with two legal provisions, the right to silence and the right to counsel. These rights were presented as they are written, and if you know anything about legal texts, you know they're not very easy to understand. But these students first heard them verbally, and then were able to give them a read. The results of this study concluded that even students in law enforcement and police recruitment programs did not understand what these provisions meant, and their own self-reported confidence of their understanding was not a good predictor of their actual comprehension. So if you can imagine that well-educated undergraduate students who are priming themselves to be the next generation of law enforcement don't even understand their basic charter or Miranda rights, then I'm sure it's pretty plausible to you that Jesse Miss Kelly, who dropped out of high school with an IQ of 72, had a hard time understanding his Miranda rights when they were read to him. And he said this. He came out and said that, yes, I was informed of these rights, but I didn't understand what was going on. And yet, somehow, the Arkansas Supreme Court ruled in 1996 that Jesse Miss Kelly was fully aware of his rights and fully comprehended them. Again, this is despite being questioned for 12 hours as a minor without a parent or an attorney, having an IQ of 72, and this whole interrogation being a classic case of coercion into a false confession. But I digress. This confession from Jesse Miss Kelly, despite being formally recanted, was in fact the basis for the West Memphis police to arrest Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin. And despite everything I just mentioned, some people do take Jesse's confession to be more legitimate. And this is because not only did he give it once, but he would end up giving confessions multiple times, typically when he seemed to be experiencing some sort of pressure. Unfortunately, again, it led to the arrest of Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin simply based off of a coerced confession and their presumptions about these two boys' association with Satanism. Now, despite being implicated in these various confessions from Jesse Miss Kelly, Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin, under what is called the Bruton Law, were not allowed to be tried with Miss Kelly. That's because one of the defense attorneys on the case filed a Bruton motion. Under Bruton law, he's essentially seeking to quote-unquote keep a co-defendant's damaging statements about his client from being exposed to the jury. What this means was that although Jesse Miss Kelly's statements were the basis for the arrests of Eccles and Baldwin, his statements could not be used to implicate Damien Eccles and Jason Baldwin. Only himself. 
which, let me restate, narrows down the amount of evidence that the prosecution had against Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin from a confession and perceived satanic affiliations to literally just the suspected satanic affiliation and then trying to match up these boys' perceived spiritual beliefs with the ways that the prosecution perceived the murders of all three eight-year-old boys to be ritualistic. And yet, somehow, prosecutors decided to go ahead with the case against these two anyways. If this whole thing sounds whack, it's because it was. I don't usually love to speculate or make any sort of determinations in my episodes, but this is just ridiculous. Unfortunately, though, the story continues. And so Jesse Miss Kelly was tried alone, and Eccles and Baldwin were tried together, and all of these trials happened in 1994. All three of these boys pleaded not guilty. During the trial of Jesse Miss Kelly, professor of sociology at UC Berkeley, Richard Offshay, was called to testify as an expert witness regarding false confessions. He stated that during the very brief recorded segments of Miss Kelly's interrogation, it was obvious that there were classic examples of police coercion. This can result from what I mentioned earlier, interrogation bias. It's a bias that results from when police officers enter an interrogation setting already believing that someone is guilty. An experiment conducted in 2003 posited mock crimes and led interrogators to believe that certain suspects were guilty or not guilty of these crimes and then set them up to interrogate these fake suspects. It was determined that interrogators with guilty expectations asked more accusatory questions. They also used a higher frequency of interrogation techniques compared with the interrogators who had innocent expectations. And what is meant by interrogation techniques are tactics that are employed specifically in an attempt to elicit a confession, as opposed to just open-ended questioning, which is typically how interviews are supposed to go, but apparently not when an interrogator again has guilty expectations. Pretty much, they started going hard on the suspects right away. And this was true regarding the pressure they put on suspects to confess if they had guilty expectations, regardless of whether the suspect was innocent of the mock crime or not. All in all, the results indicated that a presumption of guilt sets in motion a process of behavior by police where expectations influence the interrogator's behavior, as well as the suspect's behavior, and that the coercive and suggestive and manipulative nature of certain practices in interrogations are more likely to elicit false confessions. Now, there are a few different kinds of false confessions that I would like to introduce to you, but two of them really stand out to me in the case of Jesse Miss Kelly. One of them is called a coerced compliant false confession, where the suspect is making a confession fully knowing that they did not commit the crime in question, and this can happen for many reasons. They want to escape further interrogation, gain some sort of promised benefit, like immunity, or avoid a threatened punishment like Jesse Miss Kelly alluded to when making statements to the media. There's also the coerced internalized false confession, which results from suggestive interrogation, where the person making the confession actually comes to believe that they committed the crime, at least in some capacity. I think initially, Jesse Miss Kelly might have delivered a coerced compliant false confession. But given the fact that he kept making false confessions, 
I have to wonder if it was a little bit internalized. Regardless, during the trial, part of Richard Offshay's testimony as an expert witness in false confessions was about how various parts of Jesse Miss Kelly's various confessions were inconsistent with one another, despite him again making confessions more than once. One example of this was that Jesse Miss Kelly testified that he watched Damien Eccles sexually assault one of the victims, which, like I mentioned, was initially suspected by police, again given the state the bodies were found in, as well as the fact that the anuses were dilated on autopsy. But there was no evidence to suggest a sexual crime had taken place at all other than the fact that the boys were found naked. And these kinds of details were only mentioned in some of Jesse Miss Kelly's confessions, but not all of them. Critical details to substantiate his claims in these confessions were not consistent. But even despite the fact that these various confessions were contradictory to each other, police took them at face value, which is absolutely not what they're supposed to do. A quote I found is, a confession provides powerful evidence of guilt, but only if it is true. And that means that police are supposed to be able to verify certain details that a confessor gives before truly implicating them in a crime. Why do you think that people who confess to murders where bodies haven't been found are often asked to bring police to the locations of the bodies and to the locations of where some of their tools that were used in murders are hidden? On top of being able to provide closure to families and collect evidence, truly a lot of it comes from needing to substantiate a confessor's claims. Even recently, there's an example of this in Fremont County, Iowa. A young woman approached authorities claiming that her father, who is now deceased, was a pervasive serial killer who murdered over 70 women while he was active, who were mostly sex workers and runaways. Further, her and her siblings were responsible for helping him bury and hide these bodies. And so what does law enforcement do? Their due diligence. Right now, as I'm recording, this story is developing and this young woman is responsible now for bringing law enforcement to the locations of where her dad and her buried the bodies of his victims. Why is this necessary? Because police cannot just take a confession at face value. But only in the 46 minutes that are available of Jesse Miss Kelly's confession and interrogation, you can see that police were leading into questions, giving Miss Kelly bits and pieces of information about the crimes and letting him expand on it as he felt necessary in that moment. There was no way to investigate or substantiate any claims he made if they were already giving him a cheat sheet to the crime scene itself. Even still, despite the inappropriate disclosure of information and leading questions present in Jesse Miss Kelly's interrogation, he still got many of these details wrong. On February 5th of 1994, Jesse Miss Kelly was convicted by jury of one count of first-degree murder and two counts of second-degree murder. Jesse Miss Kelly was sentenced to life in prison plus 40 years. During the trial of Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin, the prosecution asserted that they had committed a quote-unquote satanic murder. The prosecution would call upon Dale Griffiths, a graduate of the unaccredited Columbia Pacific University as an expert in occult, ready to testify about exactly how the murders committed resembled that of some sort of satanic ritual. At face value, I'm sure the murder seemed ritualistic in some capacity, but maybe not necessarily satanic. 
maybe just sadistic. But given the media phenomenon of satanic panic that was overtaking the continent by storm, there was no way that they were going to let this angle go, and it would prove to be the most damning in convicting these two boys. The defense argued against Damien Eccles' statements that were made on May 9th of 1993 about the crimes. The same statements he made when he said, It seems like it would have been a thrill kill. It was someone sick. Someone who enjoyed it. The defense stated that this kind of knowledge about the crimes was coming from TV and from rumors, and Damien Eccles said himself that his knowledge was essentially limited to what was on TV. Now, TV shows that we're all used to today, like CSI and Criminal Minds, Law and Order, they hadn't come out yet. So it's not like Damien Eccles was getting information about the possibility of this killer's motive from a show like that. But remember that West Memphis, in my opinion, was a small town in the middle of the Bible Belt who had never seen horrific crime in this capacity before, especially not against very young children. You can imagine that when it happened, it's the only thing the local media ever talked about. So any tiny details, rumors, or pieces of information were going to be broadcast to Damien Eccles either via TV or, again, from rumors in his community. It's not totally out of the realm of possibility that he could have gotten his information from these external sources. It's not necessarily that he was at the crime. And this idea was further substantiated by investigative journalist Mara Leverett, who would go on to author The Devil's Knot. This novel is excellent and details this case very well. I highly recommend that you give it a read if you have the opportunity to. I will link it on my website. Frankly, I've used it as one of my sources throughout this entire episode. But she posited that Damien Eccles' information about the crime and how the killer must have felt and his motive could have come from police leaks. She backed this up by citing an instance of this when Detective Gitchell on the West Memphis Police Force made comments to Chris Byers' father, John Mark Byers, that circulated amongst the public. Now, I'm not sure what exactly these comments entail, but again, if I set the scene for you, small town, in the middle of the Bible Belt, brutal murder, people are gonna talk. Despite having no physical evidence of either Damien Eccles or Jason Baldwin at the crime scene, they were both found guilty on three counts of murder. Damien Eccles was sentenced to death, and Baldwin was sentenced to life. We, the jury, find Damien Eccles guilty of capital murder in the death of Stevie Branch, guilty of capital murder in the death of Chris Byers, guilty of capital murder in the death of Michael Moore. Yes. We, the jury, have determined that Jason Baldwin shall be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. That they burn in hell. They want to worship the devil, so they let them meet him, and I hope they do so. Now, if I haven't already rambled enough about the really awful police work in this case, then let me elaborate some more on some of the criticisms that have been brought up. Satanic panic aside, when police stumbled upon the bodies of the three victims, they effectively trampled all over the crime scene. They also mishandled evidence in a really extreme way. The bodies of the boys were found sort of in and out of the water. Investigators would go and pull these bodies out of the water in the Robin Hood Hills forest almost two hours before the coroner even arrived. The victims' bodies were then exposed to sunlight and insects, as opposed to just draining the creek, waiting for the coroner to get there, and following procedure. 
As well, police failed to investigate reasons as to why almost no blood was found at the crime scene. From the photos I've seen, it looks like there's a little bit, but not enough to justify the types of injuries that these boys suffered. They failed to investigate the possibility that the boys had been moved to that location as a secondary location and were killed elsewhere. And this part is kind of unclear to me, but it seems like they failed to test what little blood there actually was at the crime scene. Additionally, like I mentioned, police failed to control the disclosure of information about the case and the public speculation and rumors about the crime scene. If we're going to take it a step further, again, it very easily could have resulted in Damien Eccles learning information about the crime, which he willingly told police he knew about in the form of his own speculation, and they decided to take that as incriminating. According again to Mara Leverett, the investigative journalist, the police records, according to her, were a disaster. Quote, to call them disorderly would be putting it mildly. She speculated that such a small local police force like the one in West Memphis was frankly overwhelmed by this kind of crime. They couldn't handle the investigative capacity that was necessary to figure out what happened to these boys, but yet the police failed to call in assistance from other law enforcement agencies, even when assistance and consultation was offered from the violent crime experts from the Arkansas State Police. Further, it was noticed that police were bagging some of the evidence collected at the scene in paper bags from a supermarket, with the supermarket logo still on the bags that was easily identifiable, instead of just using evidence bags that are controlled. So the possibility of cross-contamination was very high. Lastly, a huge point of contention for me is that there were bite marks on the victims that were not even noticed or examined until four years after the murders, one of them being on Steve Branch's forehead. When these bite marks were discovered, Damien, Jesse, and Jason had all been willing to make dental molds and send them into the crime lab to be cross-examined with this bite mark, and none of them were a match. When these bite marks were not attributed to either of the three boys in custody, they were also attributed to those biting turtles that frequented the area in Robin Hood Hills, the same ones that were thought to be responsible for the genital mutilation seen on Chris Byers. But we will revisit this idea. In 1994, all three boys would appeal their convictions. But unfortunately, all convictions were upheld by the Arkansas Supreme Court. Then, in June of 1996, Jesse Miss Kelly's lawyer, who adamantly believed in not only his innocence, but also Damien's and Jason's, began preparing a higher appeal to the United States Supreme Court. None of their appeal efforts or any efforts to really seek their innocence seen in court were at all validated. It's almost like these boys were imprisoned and just forced to scream into the void that they were innocent. But truly, anybody who knows anything about investigations can take one look at the evidence here, or I guess a substantial lack thereof, and note that there definitely wasn't enough to put them on trial in the first place. In 2007, Damien Eccles would petition for a retrial on the basis of a new statute. 
This new statute permitted the post-conviction testing of DNA evidence at a crime scene due to new technological advances in DNA. These advances had been made after the murders were committed and the boys were arrested and convicted. And so he was hopeful that this evidence could possibly exonerate him. The evidence I'm talking about is a fiber of hair that was found in one of the knots that one of the victims was hogtied with. Damien wanted to see this hair tested for DNA, along with some other pieces of potentially invaluable DNA evidence that were noted well after the fact. However, the original trial judge, David Burnett, basically told Damien Eccles that he would not allow this information to be presented in this court, and so his petition was just tossed out. And the boys would spend decades behind bars. They were accused of a murder that really nobody could prove, all on the basis of their affiliation with Damien Eccles, who was spiritually pretty different from the rest of the community. Unlike his peers in Arkansas, he wasn't a fundamentalist Christian, he didn't attend church or even school, and he wasn't necessarily a law-abiding citizen. But none of these attributes about him prove that he's a violent child murderer, nor Jason Baldwin, nor Jesse Miss Kelly. But now, there was an opportunity to test potential exculpatory evidence. But the courts didn't seem too keen on testing this evidence, even if it would mean that the truth about these murders would finally come out. And all three boys missed invaluable parts of their lives. In fact, at the time of Damien Eccles' arrest, he was actually expecting a child with his girlfriend at the time. Now, there are many alternative suspects that people have come up with. I don't know if I'm going to get into all of them. I will dive into some of the theories, but there are two suspects who, in my opinion, seem the most likely to be involved in the murders of Michael Moore, Stevie Branch, and Christopher Byers. One of these people is Christopher Byers' own adoptive father, John Mark Byers. I don't want to talk about him too much. I actually, during my research, found out that he unfortunately passed away in a horrific car accident in 2020, and there's really no evidence to suggest any sort of suspicion of his involvement aside from some kind of weird behaviors. I'll still tell you about what I found, but I'm not positing that he's a guilty party. In the middle of 1996, a documentary film series called Paradise Lost was released after a couple of filmmakers from HBO wanted to take a deep dive into the case of the West Memphis Three. I highly recommend that you check out these films, they are very informative and very interesting, but they do leave out some critical details that I will let you investigate on your own time. During the filming of Paradise Lost, which did include the parents of the victims and many other parties involved, John Mark Byers was in a room with one of the cameramen, Doug Cooper. At some point during some interaction that they had, John Mark Byers handed over a folding hunting knife to Doug. Doug Cooper then made police aware of the presence of this knife back in December of 1993 when it happened. But it was only when the crew finished filming with John Byers that they noticed this knife seemed to have a little bit of blood on it. According to my research, this was when HBO executives ordered the return of this knife to the West Memphis PD, but it was not received until January 8th of 1994. Obviously, there was some sort of delay in transit. 
John Byers was questioned about this knife, but claimed that it was never used. But then once he was confronted about the fact that there was blood on it, he said that he did use it once to cut some deer meat. But then, contrary to the rest of their behavior throughout this investigation, the police actually decided to investigate, and they tested this blood, and it matched both John Byers and his son's, Chris's, blood type. Now, if you'll remember, John Byers actually adopted Chris Byers. He's not Chris's biological father. So it's not necessarily that it was concrete DNA evidence by any means, it was just blood type. And it was super uncertain because they both had the same blood type but they weren't biologically related and they didn't know whose blood it could possibly be. But although the actual investigation of this avenue was very much unlike the rest of the methods the West Memphis police had taken on during this investigation, they once again introduced their favorite idea of using leading questions to come to a conclusion about evidence when they interrogated John Mark Byers about this bloody knife. They suggested to John Byers that he possibly could have left this knife out by accident, and it could have nicked either him or Chris, to which he agreed. They seemed to be doing a lot of this kind of thing. John Byers would go on to pass a polygraph test, but there were then questions about Byers being potentially under the influence of some prescription medication, which could have affected his test results. I'm not sure what kind of valid evidence there is out there to suggest that someone on prescription medications may have skewed polygraph results, especially given that polygraph results aren't really even valid anyways, but I digress. Additionally, once those bite marks, especially the one on Steve Branch's forehead, was discovered and analyzed, like I mentioned, Damien, Jason, and Jesse all submitted dental imprints. And again, they were not a match. But some people found it pretty convenient that John Byers actually had his full set of teeth removed before an imprint could be made. It's also kind of fishy that his reasons for this are contradictory. He claimed that some medication he was on caused some periodontal disease, but then he also says that the removal of his teeth was planned due to other dental issues. I don't put a lot of weight into this odd behavior, and many people online don't either. I think it's pretty obvious that John Byers might have been an odd character, but that doesn't implicate him in the murder of his adopted son or his adopted son's two friends. The next theory I want to talk to you about, and one that actually seems a lot more plausible than anyone else we've discussed, is the theory that Terry Hobbs, who was Steve Branch's stepdad, was actually the guilty party. Like I had mentioned to you before, back in 2007, DNA collected from the original crime scene was petitioned to be tested. Eventually, after some back and forth, it finally was. And this DNA was actually the basis for Damien Eccles petitioning for either a retrial or immediate release from prison based on that statute. It turns out that some of this DNA that was collected was a fiber of hair, like I mentioned, that was tied up in one of the knots used to hogtie the victims. None of the DNA that was collected matched any of the three boys that were incarcerated for the murder, but a hair, quote-unquote, not inconsistent with the DNA profile of Terry Hobbs was a match, and it was that same hair that was found in the knot used to bind the victims. Another hair that was found was consistent with one of Terry's friends, David Jacoby. 
There are some court documents that include statements from John Mark Byers implicating the potential guilt of Terry and David Jacoby. Not only was this DNA evidence discovered to be a match back in 2007, but even a little while before then, John Mark Byers was pretty rattled at the fact that Terry lied to him. Terry Hobbs was one of the last people to see the boys alive, alongside many of the other neighbors in the community who saw them entering the Robin Hood Hills. But Terry and John would end up having a confrontation with each other about the time that Terry said that he saw the boys. And it was suspected by John Byers that Terry was insisting that he saw the boys earlier and was home by 6 p.m. instead of 8 p.m. when John Byers claims to have seen Terry in order to give Terry some kind of alibi. But despite all this, even though the prosecutors in the original case conceded that the DNA tested was not a match to their convicts, they still stood behind their conviction. And for what? Based on perceived Satanism? I don't get it. In addition to the suspicious circumstances surrounding Terry Hobbs' involvement, his own wife, Pamela Hobbs, would make a declaration in 2009 to the United States District Court, Eastern District of Arkansas, stating that after the murders, she found a pocket knife that belonged to her son, Stevie Branch, in Terry's nightstand. She then went on to elaborate that this pocket knife was actually gifted to her son Steve from his maternal grandfather, and it was a gift that he treasured. She had reason to believe that Steve had this knife on him at the time of his death or shortly before. It's something that he carried with him often. Again, it's a memento that he treasured from his grandfather. During this declaration, she's quoted as saying, I had always assumed that my son's murderer had taken the knife during the crime. I could not believe it was in Terry's things. He had never told me he had it. There was also some interesting statements made many years later by Amanda, who was Steve Branch's half-sister. She was only four years old at the time that her brother was murdered. She had said that she saw Terry washing clothes, bed linens, and curtains from his collection of belongings as well as from Steve's room at a quote-unquote odd time around the murders. He had come home late, started acting weird, standing in the doorway of the bathroom while she was getting ready for bed, and then as she was exiting to her bedroom, heard the washing machine going. But obviously when she was that young, she couldn't put the pieces together. Part of this paperwork that Damien Eccles filed to petition for retrial or immediate release contained information that elaborated more on the odd behavior of Terry Hobbs once it was found that his DNA was found at the crime scene. Statements made by Terry's family that implicated him in odd behavior was included in this paperwork, including the possession of Steve Branch's knife from his grandfather. If I'm allowed to speculate any further, I think Terry Hobbs being responsible for this crime makes a lot of sense in some more nuanced ways. Not only was his DNA found at the scene, as well as DNA of one of his friends, as well as he was exhibiting some weird behavior, but according to statements made by Steve Branch's family well after the fact, Steve wasn't the biggest fan of Terry and often asked his mom to leave him, divorce him, and get rid of him because he was scared of him. At one point, Steve Branch even said, Terry loves Amanda but not me. And it was clear that there was some sort of turmoil in the household in their relationship. Even more interestingly is that many people online have spoken about the fact that 
The murder of all three of these eight-year-old boys, although, again, they were very young and small, couldn't have been done alone. That would have been way too risky, even when we're talking about children. If it was only a solo attacker, and they were focusing on subduing one of the victims, the second or third very easily could have run away, started screaming, or drawn attention to the area. So it makes this secondary DNA profile consistent with David Jacoby, who was a friend of Terry Hobbs, present at the crime scene, even more interesting. And I also think, and again, this is just my speculation, but Terry's involvement in the murder actually makes a little bit of sense when we consider Steve's injuries. If you'll recall, Steve Branch's autopsy report stated that one of his ears was entirely contused. And I said earlier that to me, this indicates he was hit pretty hard with something, and it was enough of a hit to cause his entire ear to be one big bruise. I have to wonder if these three boys were blitzed, if the perpetrator or perpetrators snuck up on them out of nowhere, and it was either easy for the attackers to start with Stevie Branch by blitzing him, or if Terry targeted him especially. What if Stevie Branch was hit the hardest because that's who Terry had a vendetta against? Now, of course, this doesn't make sense in the context of the genital mutilation seen on Chris Byers, but what if those injuries did come from animal predation? And if we take away the context of those genital injuries, it really was Stevie who bore the brunt of most of the injuries. But again, whether or not it was Terry, he definitely didn't do it alone. But I can't help but think that it's convenient that not only was Terry's DNA found at the scene, but so was his friends. And not only was his stepson one of the children who were murdered, but he also happened to get hit the hardest. And then Terry just happens to be in possession of something that was near and dear to Stevie's heart, that knife from his grandfather. After what the Innocence Project calls several rounds of DNA testing failing to turn up any physical evidence connecting these three now men to the crime scene, it was decided amongst them and the prosecution that they could strike a deal. In 2011, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miss Kelly were subject to weeks of negotiation with the prosecution. Obviously, this came many years after the DNA evidence was tested and retested and found not at all to be a match to any of them. As a part of a deal that was struck, the three of them were immediately released from prison, but with one condition. The three of them had to submit Alfred pleas. Alfred pleas are kind of odd, and frankly, I only know about them because of this case. What an Alfred plea is, is essentially a legal mechanism that allows a defendant to plead guilty while maintaining their innocence. It's kind of odd, but stay with me. It allows a defendant to say, you have enough evidence to assert that I'm guilty and I accept that, but I am still innocent of this crime. All three of these now men submitted these Alfred pleas and were immediately released from prison, but I have a few thoughts about this. There were many minor details that I had to omit from this episode, just given its length. But with or without those minor details, I'm still not convinced that there was enough evidence to put these three boys on trial, let alone convict them and hold them behind bars for decades. So for the prosecution to force them to admit that there is enough evidence to consider them guilty, I think that's absurd. But I also think that there was a specific reason why the prosecution did this. I speculate that 
This Alford plea was forced into submission because it allows a law enforcement entity essentially to close a case and accept that there is a guilty party, while still sort of exonerating someone from a crime. It's sort of this unsaid agreement between law enforcement and the defendants, like, you know, we know that as police we messed up, we're not going to be held accountable for it, uh, you can maintain your innocence, but we're gonna document a guilty plea so that one, we don't have to pay you for falsely imprisoning you, and two, we no longer have to reinvestigate this case. And that was something that Damien Eccles was outspoken about once he had the opportunity to get himself in the media, once he started being interviewed. He said that despite all the time he spent behind bars, he was never paid a dime by the state even though everybody and their mother knew that they were all innocent and that calling this case a witch hunt would be a dramatic understatement. He especially was personally victimized for his perceived affiliations to Satanism, and a large part of that is from contributions of that moral satanic panic that encapsulated the media back in the 70s and 80s and only just started to die out when these murders happened. Recently, the West Memphis Three, Damian Eccles, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Jason Baldwin have all stepped back into court to try and seek justice for the three boys that were murdered. Also, to formally clear their names, because again, technically on record, they are still guilty parties. And to do this, they assert that once again, Terry Hobbs is the true murderer. These developments are as recent as August of 2022, and interestingly, Terry Hobbs is still maintaining his innocence despite DNA evidence placing him at the crime. He made a recent statement to journalist George Edward, who also spent time with both Damian Eccles and Jason Baldwin before their initial hearings. He's interviewed the boys while they were incarcerated and has formed somewhat of a relationship with them. But Terry Hobbs, on the other hand, told this journalist that he didn't kill his stepson or his son's friends, and said essentially that if the West Memphis Three want DNA re-examined, then he doesn't. In another interview conducted by the Mysterious Circumstances podcast hosted by Justin Rimmel, Terry Hobbs said that he hopes the judge in this case does the quote-unquote right thing and orders all the evidence to be destroyed. All in all, I think that we're just going to have to wait for more information in this case. However, I think that if the prosecution and the judicial system wants to play fair, then we will see a resolution in this case. But so far, they've been pushing back really heavily on letting this DNA be retested and affirming that it belongs to Terry Hobbs. For whatever reason, they have really dug their heels into this satanic ritualistic murder conducted by Damien Eccles, and I think had to eat their words a little bit when they submitted an Alfred plea and were released. I don't think the prosecution was very happy about it at all, but I think their hands were tied. I also think that Terry Hobbs was probably very upset if he is guilty to see that these three men were released, even if they're still guilty on record. Despite this case being almost 30 years old, personally, I have a lot of faith that it will get solved, again, if the court decides to cooperate. But I'm really curious to know what you guys think about this one. Frankly, the case of the West Memphis Three is one of many examples of how panic over Satanism infiltrated American media and had really dangerous effects. 
Damien, Jason, and Jesse were incarcerated for almost 20 years for a crime that they could only be associated to based on a false confession and some assumptions about one of the party's associations with satanic rituals that was never substantiated and he claimed to be an entirely different set of spiritual beliefs. But the media, law enforcement, the general populace were so zeroed in on this idea of Satanism infiltrating the youth of America that these boys unfortunately had to learn the hard way that no matter what you are in society, if it's anything different from the culturally accepted norm, unfortunately life is going to be a little harder for you. And that's because the people in power want to keep society the same. If you listen to Damien Eccles give interviews, which he did plenty of after his release, you'll see that he's actually very well-spoken. He's a very articulate man, especially for someone who dropped out of high school and then spent most of his life in prison, mind you, on death row. And I hope at the end of all of this, the big takeaway message is you really can't judge a book by its cover. And when you do, it can have very serious consequences. Thank you all for listening to another episode of the Crimopedia podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. The West Memphis Three have been on my roster of potential episodes for a very long time, and it feels like right now is the perfect time to tell you all about it. Now, I know this episode was excruciatingly long, but I did leave out so many details that I encourage you to check out on your own. You can find all of the source material for this episode on my website at crimopediapod.ca, and if you're interested in following me on Instagram, you can find me at crimopediapod. If you want to reach out, you have a case suggestion, you want to chat about something, feel free to message me on Instagram via DMs, or you can fill out the case suggestion forum on my website. Alternatively, you can email me at crimopediapod at hotmail.com. Thanks again for listening, everybody. Take care, be safe, and happy Halloween.